welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. We're continuing our interview with Chris Clearfield. This is part three, I believe. And we're going to pick up on the very interesting notion of a pre-mortem. Not a post-mortem. Not looking back at something that went wrong, but looking forward at things that could go wrong. Let's turn over to Chris. The book was really a a fun thing to dive into and to write, because even though we're talking about failures here, what we're really talking about is all the ways that you can build capabilities in your teams for them to thrive. And I think that one of the the chapters, we talk about a bunch of different tools that are like little cognitive hacks that you can use to help reorient yourself to kind of taking a broader view and, and doing a better job as a team, as a group of kind of catching these things before they become problems. And one of my favorite tools is um, the premortem. Do you guys, have you guys heard of the premortem? We, we, we did one for the book we're writing so that we can, we can try to figure out uh, how it might go wrong when we were writing the book. And awesome. I think we were pretty good at predicting, Jeffrey. Yeah. <laughs> some, some of those things happened. Yes, that's true. And, awesome. and we've talked about it on the podcast as well, I think. Awesome. So in case somebody hasn't heard of it, the sort of the crux of the premortem is, um, well, the, a postmortem is great, right? It lets you learn from a failure, but the chief limitation is the failure has already happened. Mm. And so... The premortem was invented by this um, psychologist called Gary Klein, and what it does is it puts us in the situation of imagining it's six months from now, imagining you know this big feature that we're trying to to work on or this architecture change we're doing or whatever. It's six months from now. It's been a total failure. It's been a total bust, and in fact, it's such a big failure that we're embarrassed to talk about it. Um, we're embarrassed to like look at each other. Like we don't want to work with those people anymore. Like it's a really, really bad setup. Now, what are the stories? What are the problems that led us to this failure? And I think this is different than brainstorming, right? Brainstorming is like what could go wrong. This is something has gone wrong. What were the causes for that failure? Um, and it's a really powerful way of you know, run this in a room. It takes, you know, 10, 15 minutes with your team. And it really shifts everybody from being in that happy path mindset to being, okay, well, here are the things that, given that we failed, here are the things that that went wrong. And it, it taps into um, our sort of human ability to tell stories in a really powerful way. And you can also, by the way, run it in the positive case. You know, let's imagine it's six months from now. And, um, you know, this, this whole effort has been a real smashing success and we've done a great job and, you know, we're getting kudos all around and we're really proud of the work we did. Well, what are the things, what are the behaviors that led to that positive outcome? You know, maybe it's talking to customers more often. Maybe it's, you know, there's kind of all of these things that it could be, but by, by really creating the opportunity to kind of crystallize that in a structured way, we can think better both about the, the happy path and the not happy path. It's really interesting you talk about this, and I, I I don't know what it says about me that when I have done the premortem, so I, I think we do tend to focus on the negative case. <laughs> but I think what's very interesting is is it's not the same as brainstorming what might go wrong, right? And, and I think this is unintuitive for people because they think, well, what's the difference? I mean, you're you're trying to imagine, you know, what what could go wrong. But uh, it, it it in my experience, as you describe it, is a very different thing, and and that you you talked about getting the storytelling. I think there's also the question of kind of what it means to be a good contributor in the room. Yes, and uh, maybe you can talk about that about sort of a, that aligned perspective that you've you develop. 
Yeah, totally. So, you know, I think probably all of us have, have unfortunately been part of a, a project where um, I feel like it's kind of out of a Dilbert cartoon, right? Where it's like, like, everybody's like, yeah, boss, this is a great idea, but really nobody thinks it's a great idea. <laughs> and the, what one of the things the premortem does is it it it, it shifts the, the dynamic of the discussion. So if you as a group are explicitly running a premortem, what it does is it makes it so, you know, the reward, the kind of social reward isn't for thinking of ways that things will work and thinking of the clever idea to make things work. The, the kind of social reward now comes from thinking of the um, unexpected ways that things might fail or the kind of, um, you know, being sort of being rewarded for coming up with these good, you know, true stories of potential failure. And, and I will say that, you know, the, the outcome of the premortem is not, um, it's not like a, you know, mission control, NASA, you know, go, no, go decision. (laughs) It's like, oh, like we have these issues how are we going to mitigate this, right? Like, oh, well, you know, the the feature doesn't work or like we've, you know, we've we've decided to use this third-party API that if it has this this kind of failure mode, then this whole thing isn't going to work. Well, now all we have to do is have somebody go investigate whether the third-party API has this failure mode. And we can now have a much more informed decision on what the real risks we're facing are. And if it in fact doesn't, then we know that's not a risk. If it does, now we know, okay, maybe we should look for a different different API or maybe this is now something we have to write in-house or or whatever. But it just, it gives us the ability to go in with kind of eyes wide open instead of, and, and gets the group to talk about it instead of it being like, oh, well, I knew that was going to be a problem. Right, exactly. And and, and, it's, and we mentioned the term safety before, and I think that's what it's done is it said a good performance is coming up with that creative story. Yes. It removes all the fear. And, and I often say that, you know, fear, when that limbic system is engaged, it narrows our vision. And, and, and that's antithetical with creativity. And so it, it's, if you want people to be thinking creatively of all the things that could happen, and, and you do, <laughs> then it's, you need to get them in a, in a, in a space where there's no concern that no one's going to look back and go, wow, you really are negative about this. <laughs> which totally. the brain the brainstorming leaves you open to that that being a very strong contributor there these people saying wow why are you, why are you so negative about everything I, I think the other thing too is making it a group activity rather than kind of devolving it to the sort of tendencies or or, or proclivities of individuals is you know, now all of a sudden it's not just like, oh, like that's Bob again. He's negative about every project. Like now all of a sudden it's everybody who's kind of thinking about it. And so the ability to like, to, to sort of use motivated reasoning to kind of write off somebody's opinion is a lot lower. Yeah, that's a great point. There you go. Um, so I, I've been thinking as you're describing this of a, a story that I think you might enjoy. It's, it's one where um, I don't think we used a premortem because it was before I'd, I'd heard of the term. But um, we, we did manage to be very creative in um, how we addressed potential failure. We, we had a system that was um, spaghetti would be a, a, a very um, a uh-huh. charitable term for it. It was uh, pretty Some terrifying. Kind of pasta driven architecture. Yeah, exactly. It was driven by, by insanity as far as we could tell. And um, uh, 
uh, uh, I, if you want to talk about complexity and, and emergent behavior, you, you would push one a button in one place and it would have an effect completely that you didn't expect. We had a, a place where uh, when you opened a screen, it would reduce all the prices of all the items on the site by a thousandfold. Um, oh my God, so that's that was, so amazing. That was amazing. an unintended consequence, right? <laughs> you didn't expect that as a result of, uh, of opening a particular page. So um, what we, uh, you know, you might think that if we were going to do kind of the standard thing that we would go and put in a whole bunch of quality checks and get system testers and, and all kinds of things. And we didn't do any of that. Um, what we did is we put in, in place really, really fast rollback. Uh, and we made a big red button and, and you could just push this button and it would roll back the system really fast. And the reason we did that is because our, our users were actually really failure tolerant as long as the site came up, back up quickly. And um, it was it was the fact that we were able collectively to be creative in that way. We weren't so afraid of the idea that we might be down. Actually, one reason we weren't so afraid is we were down a lot. So um, we were used to it. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't so frightening because it was familiar. Um, and we said, well, you know, before we go off and, you know, do a lot of quality checking, is there anything else we could do? Well, what we could do is just make it really easy to roll back. So as soon as we break something, we can put it back. So the, the dynamic was that... Um, uh, we sat near the customer service people, and so they would shout "sites down," and we'd say "back up," because we would have hit the the red button. It would bring back the site in about half a millisecond, and um, then then we'd go go on and figure out what went wrong. So um, that that's an example I think that I'm I'm proud of where where my team was able to to unleash that creativity. I think that's fabulous, and and I think that you know one of the things when we're when we are doing work with teams or organizations around these ideas. One of the things is exactly that. There are lots of creative ways to build resiliency and robustness into your technology stack, right? One of them is the kind of, you know, like test as early as possible, the kind of, you know, classic sort of continual deployment, continuous integration thing. Um, But there is another way, which is, you know, try to make it easy to realize when things are broken and easy to go back to a state where things are good. Um, and I think you, you just kind of, that was a beautiful example of that. Hmm. It really reduces the complexity or rather the complexity is still there, but it lets you hide it. It reduces the tight coupling is, is I think how I would think about it. Right. So, so the complexity is still there, but now all of a sudden things are less tightly coupled to the release you just pushed out. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the problems we had in that in that story was this terrible, terrible technical debt. Seven years of being written by by one person who who really did not understand how code worked, um, but had, had managed to make a system somehow. Um, and and that technical debt is often a big source of uh, complexity and coupling and on all of these difficulties. And I know our listeners often write to us and talk to us about what they can do about technical debt. And I, I'm not sure I have a, a wonderful answer. Uh, I wonder. Chris, do you have any any point of view on this from from uh, a, a slightly outside development technology angle that you could help us with? Yeah, I do, and it, you know, it's something that comes up a lot in the the discussions I have in the course of our work. I mean, I think there's a couple of things to do. You know, one thing that we have done. Um, that I think can be really helpful is, so you can use a pre-mortem to sort of articulate the kinds of technical debt that you have, right? So whether that's in terms of, you know, the site being down or the question is phrased as kind of what, you know, what part of our infrastructure is going to negatively impact us the most in the next 12 months, um, something like that. I think you can you can get a group of people to, um, with some wisdom, articulate the real sources of technical debt that they see. And, and that, you know, that can be at the level of a team or it can be at the level of more senior people in an organization. 
And I, I think one of the cool things that that we have played with, and I'm I'm curious how you guys think this might work in organizations that that you're working with or are a part of, is um, this idea of using kind of real time voting. Um, so we use forced choice voting sometimes to get groups to, you know, independently vote on, and and then you kind of have this consensus that emerges on you know, which of these things is most critical to tackle next? Is it, you know, the fact that we have reliance on this external API or the fact that our database stack is, you know, operates in this way? And so they can like sort of make a choice between those two. And then they are presented to other kind of tech debt or failure stories, um, you know, sampled with replacement from this pool. And then at the end of the day, you get this kind of ranked list of, what people think will have the most impact in in the next 12 months or the next 18 months or whatever time frame you want to do and that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the order that you start to tackle things in but it does give you some way to structure a discussion and structure a decision making process around what often otherwise can feel like this sort of i mean i want to sound too negative but it can feel like this hopeless problem where people like they just don't know what to do. You know, it's so hard to think about. Like, what, what, what should the engineers be spending time working on next? Um, you know, what should my payments group do? Should they add this, you know, new payment API, or should they do this other thing? And this is a way to not not exactly quantify, but start to get some some structure around the decision making of how we think about this. I really like that because you're talking about making it, um, you know, explicitly a shared problem. And I think one of the challenges of technical debt is that uh, people often feel that uh, they're kind of fighting the battle alone. Uh, <laughs> you know, no one else cares, no one else knows. Uh, and, you know, all they care about is we deliver the feature and I'm sitting here patching stuff together left, right, and center. And so I really like that, that you're getting this, um, gr again, we're going to kind of this group uh, involvement in saying, you know, there's there's probably some serious things here. But but I, the problem that I see, and and that I I don't know exactly how to solve. Maybe you guys will have an idea. Is that the group really should be much broader than the development team, and and that's where there's really challenge because the people who aren't developers don't know where the technical debt is, but they're also the ones who are pressing for the new features. So the thing I would love to do is have forced choice that involved the sales team and the marketing team and the customer service people but to have them informed in some way so that they could help us make the choice. Because um, what's uh, very often the, the way, the reason you feel alone is because um, the, the person down the hall doesn't understand at all, doesn't understand what technical debt means and, and why it's holding you up. It just says, why haven't you fixed my bug yet? I want to put this in first and see what Chris has to say about it. We just were talking recently in our, in our sort of post-mortem process, uh, we, we identify CAPAs, you know, corrective and preventive actions. And, what we were talking about is being very clear that we take that to the business and get input from sales and account management to say, you know, this, because we're talking here after an incident, you know, we, we had this, we had this outage or we had this degradation. You are already aware of it because, you know, your clients were impacted. Now, since now you're an informed uh, um, uh, participant, you know, here's the work that we think that we would like to do is this something that you would support? And the idea is that if the, but they, they are making an informed choice where they know if you say, yes, go ahead, we're absolutely going to prioritize this, which means you're going to have to wait for other things, but you have the option of saying no. Squirrel from the future cutting in here. 
we've got more interview to come, but not enough time on today's podcast. So we'll be continuing next time. As usual, we really like it when you click the subscribe button in your app of choice and you're able to hear us every Wednesday when we come around with the next version of Troubleshooting Agile, in this case, the next episode of this interview with Chris Clearfield, co-author of Meltdown. You can get in touch with us at troubleshootingagile.com where you will find email and Twitter and anything else we're using these days. And soon you'll find information about our forthcoming book, Agile Conversations from IT Revolution Press. So get in touch with us if you have some stories about your own meltdowns. We'll be back next week 